Durham 2017, just before I left to move to Australia, I went to see the gloaming in Vancouver with my best mate Greg from Seattle. We happened to get a couple of tickets to this right at the last minute and Elisa said, go, go to Vancouver, you know. So we had one night in Vancouver, like all day, we went up early in the morning on a Sunday. We had a gloaming gig in the evening. We had all day to just hang out in Vancouver. Sun was splitting the stones. I was right on the cusp of moving away from Seattle and this place that I loved out into the unknown again. And it was a really bittersweet day and a half. But there was a lot of sweet, you know. And because you're a sentimental I, you know, I'm Plus sentimental. I, I, well, I am sentimental. I am sentimental. But what I am is is I'm very emotionally driven, right? And so, if that's sentimental, so I I don't sentimental is. What's wrong? Is, what's, nothing wrong with sentimental. No, 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 no I know, but are. like, but when people tend to use the word sentimental, it there's um, there's a connotation to it of you know um, that it's uh, either sentiment. that it's self indulgent or that it's. Uh, it's excessive. Yeah, and you're not dungeon too. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I am. But that's not a bad thing. Yeah. That's my positive point. size of all these things. <laughs> so anyway, the good thing was I was with my mate Greg, who has no time for that kind of carry on, which is probably why we're good mates, you know. So um, it was just amazing. And to have at the end of the day of just hanging out and really getting to spend special time with one of your closest friends in your life, to have this concert at the end of it that I could vaguely see in the distance after a day of being in the pub. It was it was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. I like and then the next day going back down to Seattle with this incredible just this uh oceanic experience of of listening to the gloaming kind of ringing in my in my soul was Phenomenal. What so. I love about the gloaming and I love about Queen is the. We should say steeped. Queen our guest. I've noticed we've a terrible habit of just going kind of straight and using the person's first name. So sorry, Queen. He's our friend. Now. But the it just allows people like me. So in two thousand and seventeen, I I wasn't listening to traditional Irish music a lot listen to all time but the the Irish stuff still felt very intimidated to it was just such an ocean to dip my toe in stuff like um this is how we fly stuff like gloaming um I think I'd listened to maybe one or two of Queen's solo albums at that stage but it was such an easy gateway for someone with my temperament like being interested in more kind of avant-garde things ambient techno part of my life they led very easy to that world. And then I think it's probably the first time I heard those tones and textures and styles of playing being used in Irish music that really just lit me up. So when we yeah. got to have a chat with, with, with him today, yeah. you can tell I was a, a little bit a little bit chuffed with myself. Actually, I got my first brownie points for this entire project, for this entire project from my kids because they have a playlist that they listen to before they go to bed. And there's a selection of tunes in there. And my wife put on the Sailor's Bonnet, the gloaming version of mm-hmm. it. And then during the week, I got to say to them, so I'm actually speaking with one of the lads from uh, the gloaming. And they were like, 
who and I'm like you know this song and I put it on they're like oh yeah really eyes lit up I was like oh dad's actually doing something worthwhile right, so and then that's it. the last episode of the Blarney Pogues <laughs> Sorry, you can't get you can't get any better than no. that, right? So uh, your your mission's accomplished. Yeah, yeah. sorry, dad joke. <laughs> so today's guest, Quivin O'Reilly, and um, I think we're just going to get into this. Um, we'll hit you up at the end as usual with patreon.com forward slash Barney Pilgrims because we'd love you to go there to support the podcast at the whatever level suits you. Um, it's only your support that makes us able to do this and makes us able to have an hour and a half of deep conversation with a player like Quivine or Isla. So it's um thank you to you, thank you to Quivine and away we go. Enjoy. Quivino Raila, welcome to the Blarney Pilgrims podcast. Thanks very much. <laughs> so, uh, what a what a treat to have a chance to talk to you. What what was that you just played? I I think was that the catch jig. I'm not sure. I I it I haven't played it in a long time. Uh, as you might have guessed, but uh, it's a lovely tune. Nothing wrong with it at all. And uh, it's the one that came into my head <laughs> when nothing else right. came in. Um. Uh, okay, well that answers my next question, which was, where did you pick that one? Uh, there you go. Um, I don't think it was the cash jig, though. Oh, was it not? What was it? Um, I. Oh, is there a tune ca- called Maka, uh, is it Maka Warja or something like that? Sounds That's my good to terrible me. Irish pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking at me for help, anyway, but I'm going to be. Okay. Okay. Oh so. yeah, the cash goes up, doesn't it? I I um. Uh, oh yeah, Jimmy that's, Ward's Jake. That's what it is. Jimmy Ward's. Aye. That's the one. So I was, I was nearly right. That's the, isn't that the Irish version of it? Roughly. Oh in yeah. North Antrim, there you kind go. Kind of Irish accented Irish. <laughs> is it? Yes. 
Are you, are you joking? Yeah, no, I'm not joking. Okay. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, thank you. So um, where should we begin? I have about um, 54,000 things that I kind of thought would be interesting to talk to you okay, about. Okay, number but, two, um, 26,317. 26,317 yeah. is, um, you mentioned on the phone the other day that you hadn't been playing for a while and I wondered, uh, I wondered if that was where we should start. So, Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, so have you been having a rest? I have, well, yeah, I suppose. I mean, kind of with the whole pandemic situation, you know, um, all all gigs are off, obviously, and all sessions are off and uh, everything like that. And um so yeah, I suppose there's no no great motivation to to take the fiddle out of the case, and I suppose I've always taken extended breaks from playing, um, which is yeah, I guess different different people <laughs> have different approaches. But I I remember a recording of you might have heard of the the fiddler from West Clare from Cree, uh, Patrick Kelly, and an interview with him where he he talks about that, saying he'd often go three or four months without touching the fiddle and uh I suppose different people are wired differently but I, I yeah I don't feel the need to play I suppose I think of of um I think of music as a, a way of communicating with people so if there's no one to communicate with I find it very abstract to just play um so yeah maybe that's that's part of it or in my own yeah. head that's that's what's going as someone on. who's learning the fiddle I'm 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 uh, I'm used to having very uninteresting conversations with myself. <laughs> it's actually something that uh, reading about you and and kind of your philosophy to music and stuff and and you've mentioned many times coming back to communicating with people um just how that would pan out in a pandemic like this when like if you if you're a musician and a touring musician like yourself is there a need to to play on where most of us are kind of taking the opportunity to maybe use the time a little bit more productively maybe there's not the 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 need as much the the, the yearn actually that's a very ill ill formed question it's more of a poorly put statement <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i suppose i yeah i don't i don't really feel the need to play i find it very hard to i found it you know it's a obviously for some people i'm sure it's an amazing golden opportunity to create and uh and you know make new music and record music and all of that but i really haven't found it i've found quite the opposite i haven't kind of felt any music in in the veins no music in the blood really at all and no need to kind of force it because i think i've i suppose i just find uh sometimes a break is very beneficial too so so um, what would what would regular music life for you look like what what does that look like when you're in the swing of, of playing is it how much is spread between creative and how much is when i say creative i mean m maybe creating new projects and how much is then rehearsing for ongoing projects um it's it's kind of more nurturing on ongoing projects so that you'd have you kind of have each project might be in a different stage of a cycle and a cycle i guess typically would go um create new material with the the people involved kind of refine that material and then record it or tour it and um and create something and you know that that 
thing can be a concert or a recording or uh, some other form of you know a thing that you they want to share with people and and then i guess you move on and and th- that whole life cycle can could be four or five years long um but you've got so many different projects going on that you've m- loads of <laughs> different projects at different stages of completion and uh, so you're kind of getting your head in the space maybe to write new material for one project and then you're moving on to recap material you've written you know four years ago that you haven't toured since and you need to to get back up to speed and um yeah i suppose there's it's kind of something i really enjoy having all these different working relationships with music musicians that you can yeah bounce off different people at different times in different ways where were you what what part of the process were you before the pandemic hit well i was right on the point of a tour and an album release with dan truman so we we brought out a record a good few years ago now called Laidu, and um oh. we'd kind of yeah created a new new album and it was, i was really excited about it i've been working hard on it for uh, a good while an incredibly satisfying project um and we were meant i was meant to be touring that in the states with dan in march of this year and then in europe in april um so obviously all that had to to be cancelled and we decided to postpone the album release as well just because it felt very strange to to put it out without all the you know the actual physical thing the physical thing is a really important part of that project the kind of the work that's gone into the design of the artwork uh, rather than a cd cover you know a package for a cd we decided in this modern era there's people don't really bother with cds on the whole anymore so if you're going to make artwork let's just make artwork and the wonderful designer friend of ours, Rosie McCauley, had designed this series of six posters that formed kind of a stage set that we interacted with throughout the performance, kind of a really visually compelling set of posters that kind of has a, have instruction for us as musicians and kind of meditation pieces for us as musicians. And uh, so, yeah, it just felt it would be quite strange to release the album without that element, which was a really kind of thoughtful part of the the whole the whole project were you um were you, were you planning on releasing a vinyl because you said it was a it was a physical part is that does it just come in the the form of posters or was there a, a record component as well well yeah we had uh we've cds made up and you know digital downloads uh we hadn't oh, okay vinyl. yeah so right so yeah but you sorry, I thought I, I must have misheard. I, th- I thought you you weren't doing CDs, but you, you well, just, you're ad- you're adding to the to the medium. It's rather than you know the CD being the focus of of the you know we think of you make an album an album equals CD in a package. Uh, this was kind of re-examining that kind of presumption that assumption that uh, an album is a cd it's like well not anymore an ad- album is most often a digital download so if you're going to go to the bother of putting a load of thought and effort into making artwork why confine it to the form of a cd package sure if you want a cd we'll give you a cd but this cd you're just going to rip it on your computer and throw the cd in the drawer that never sees the light of day again so it felt like a yeah nice little experiment and 
can we expand the idea of what album artwork is? It's such a lost, and hopefully not completely lost. Obviously, someone like yourself is is dabbling in that world again. But I've just recently got a um, a second record player just to put out where myself and Dom record. Not like with pandemic, this is now my office where I, I spend pretty much. 10 12 hours a day anyhow it means i've just been sitting going through records as i work and i've i reckon i've probably only listened to about 30 or 40 at the minute in the in the last couple of weeks that it's been out here but because i'm engaging with them i'm actually looking inside these covers which when i bought the record the first few times i listened to the record i didn't know there's extra artwork in there and it's probably about one in ten have extra bits of content in there and it's been such a lovely treat just to sit down and look at all this extra art that's been sitting that unappreciated and i, I imagine with the amount of records i have how much other gems are hidden hidden in there for me in the next couple of weeks brilliant yeah i love that i mean i, I think i uh we all have that experience of you know years ago getting the record and putting it on and reading the entire cover from beginning to end while you listen to music and kind of that the yeah that that visual component is, can be a huge part of the experience of a record of course there's so many great records that just are terribly <laughs> yeah. designed and it doesn't affect how you feel about the record as well but i just personally i think it's a really lovely opportunity to give something more to the person who's um on the other end who's paying out you know 15 or 20 quid for this uh, thing you've made and I, I think it can be a really nice opportunity to kind of enrich the experience for them of you know uh, of the music that it's you're you're trying to give them more in whatever way whatever way that is you know there's so many <laughs> ways to give more sometimes it's by giving less <laughs> that you know it might be the choice of one photograph or something like that is actually the correct thing rather than an essay but um yeah. So so then when we're t- talking about that project and talking about that um, uh, visual experience and that physical experience that you're wanting to engage in with an audience, right? Um, what does that demand of you as a performer? Do you mean that like what I'm talking about there with the, with the CD and the, or an album and... It's- I'm talking about actually when you launch and and when you're performing live with these visual elements. Yeah, well, I guess I guess it does demand more of you. And and, um, in some ways, you know, it's uh, (laughs) and I'm sure it wouldn't be for everyone. A lot of some people might look at it and think, ah, what are they at? Would they not just play the music? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) They might be right, too. But um, I don't know. It's it's just feel it felt like a, a really interesting thing for us to explore and uh, learn through i guess um i i suppose when i when i work with someone what i really like is that they they feel free to give whatever they want to give and and that's really uh the case with that project with dan truman because the designer rossi mccauley he's a he's a really extraordinary human being and a designer and um a kind of his input is is huge it's it's a two-way street so things that he comes back to us with i was i was thinking about this uh then we try and react to that so instead of the brief being okay you design uh, a cd cover um and it has you know 
there's the specifications and of course he could just if he wanted to he could do that in the blink of an eye but he's coming back with amazing ideas and we're thinking okay well can we adapt what we do in response to what he's given us and that when you start working with people in that way of like you're totally free to do whatever you want and uh and then we're responding to it so so that's where the whole idea of of the the concert uh, set came from was Rossi coming back with this idea of a series of posters and then him coming back with the idea of like oh well you could have these actually on stage with you and then getting into uh, epic discussions with him over like how can we uh, you know respond to that and and in a way who's who's telling who what to do is like wherever he chooses to place things on those posters as the designer is going to influence the way we move on stage and stuff like that so I know for me it's a really satisfying kind of uh, philosophy of working with people that you that you want them to to feel like they're getting to give quite a lot does does that mean then that the in performance that there's a fluidity to the performance from one performance to the next i suppose every every project can be different but yeah yeah very often there is um sometimes a performance can be totally improvised so it's uh yeah there's and sometimes you can be kind of working to a, a fairly solid uh solid plan that doesn't allow for a whole lot of variation but yeah there's kind of uh everything is on a spectrum maybe of those two extremes have you have you ever had to pause a project like this before no like i know you probably haven't gone through a pandemic but i mean just kind of um put just putting a project that you believe in and having to put it put it aside for some a reason that's outside the artistic endeavor to then try and keep that momentum for however long it's going to be before you can get back into the physical space is that something that troubles you i it no i just accept it really to be honest i you know there's not too much point getting worried about it uh <laughs> there's people in a hell of a lot worse positions and um uh-huh. yeah it's a small price to pay but uh yeah it's funny the momentum is a is a big thing it's kind of and it's very hard to plan like you know it's not like we can decide okay we'll we'll do it when this is over <laughs> it's like yeah. when when's that going to be when are we going to when am i going to be able to travel to the states and do a concert for you know a few hundred people packed in a small room it could be quite some time so uh yeah and particularly with the, by the sounds of it the project was such a um such a fluid experience where where things change quite a lot to then kind of draw a line where you're supposed to pause and the product is is supposed to be i'd imagine somewhat finished i would imagine by the time you come around to revisiting again with a um with a clear mind there's going to be a lot of new ideas on the table with what that piece of art is now yeah yeah probably i guess i we shall see <laughs> well Quiven, would you, would you give us another tune and then we'll sure yeah any any ideas or any 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 tunes you're enjoying yourselves at the moment uh, how about, how about... most things you do <laughs> will drive me wild anyway i'm a, I'm a huge fan so uh, whatever you would like to do um will be amazing i really loved your version of kitty lie over that you oh, did cool. with mick o'brien it's yeah just a, yeah just a beautiful little tune and such a i i um 
it, it made me think of actually there's a there's a thing online where uh, I think it's Killian Vallely plays a version of the Lark in the Morning, and I think of Kitty Layover as being in a similar vein in the sense that it's one of those tunes that you learn as a as a young musician, right? And hearing it played by by yourself and and make it just had this whole other color to it, and it's just absolutely gorgeous. I'll um, give that a whirl. So yeah, I is think that too I, traditional? Not at all. Don't be daft. Uh, it's a it's a beautiful tune, and that that version I think for us would come from Seamus Ennis. There's a recording of him uh, playing on the pipes, and then he kind of pauses and sings a verse of it, and plays another bit on the pipes, and keeps the drones going, and sings a verse of it. So that's kind of where it comes in our heads, anyway. I think. Might need to tune up here for a wee bit. Thank you. 
Hello. Hey. <laughs> Incredible. How, how was that? How was that for you? <laughs> well, it's gas. The hair on the bow broke there in the middle of it. A hair, and it it's funny. It happens from time to time, but um, it goes down the fingerboard, gets caught under one of my fingers as I play, and then pulls the bow <laughs> down the fiddle. And I had my eyes closed, so I didn't know what was going on. Suddenly, the bow skids across the fiddle, and uh, yeah, it was a uh, uh, interesting. Uh, it's the music of chance. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just wanted you to keep going there because I was um, I was just thinking um, one of the things that Darren and me have wondered about is what happens when you do an Irish tune over and over and over again beyond the, the more conventional two times round or three times round, you know, what kind of mental space you get into. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you keep going, you get very interesting places indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, it's. It, I'm. I'm always surprised that it doesn't happen more, more often. It's. It's definitely a a thing that is not is much rarer than you would imagine it should be for something that gives such delight. Yeah, yeah. I suppose. I suppose people have, unwittingly, even in in a situation where they don't think it's a performance situation, the kind of the, the the inward looking gaze on yourself is so kind of omnipresent in today's world that like you feel some external pressure that um it, oh it'd be, it wouldn't be right to play it like a hundred times in a row or that you know somebody else might feel that you're doing something i think i think that's probably there at the back of a lot of people's mind perhaps um rather than just uh going for it and i suppose you know, certainly old time music, American old time music, I think they do tend to just play something over and over and over and over again. And it's certainly something uh, that I've I've done a lot of in my time. I just I love it. I love if you it, it's, quite it's kind of like um, writing, I think, you know, when you sit down to write and um, creative writing and, you know, you've got a blank page and I think you just need a few to write a few pages of utter junk to get anywhere interesting perhaps for me anyway and I feel like that happens the first maybe 20 times you play a tune you're just kind of getting through all your own baggage and garbage that are uh, they are all the clever things you think you can do and then you kind of get beyond them to to other places where it's not so intentional and and uh, maybe subconscious stuff is going on that's a bit more interesting I love that analogy too because it it also speaks to why it's so hard to push through because the same with writing the first two pages are are excru- excruciating because of everything that could go wrong and the fear and so often you just don't write then so it's easier to step away and the same when playing for an extended period of time like I just did it the other night when I was here and I tried to play on the banjo tune for as long as I could before I couldn't play any play it anymore and the first 10 15 times through it were just it was hell it was I was completely in my own head and it's the, it's because it was the fear of going further or the fear of this being silly which is to me what stops me from writing nine times out of ten yeah 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 absolutely I think it's the the, the very same thing really so what what like looking down at the tradition what would you what would your stab at why it's not as popular 
as say old time what is it within the tradition that keeps it two times around three times around next june or is, is that maybe well tradition at this point probably uh i suppose <laughs> like the, the there was a huge influence i think with the 78 records uh in the the 1920s and kind of subsequently that kind of influence of of recorded music and a lot of there was obviously a constraint in terms of the medium there that it was whatever three minutes long or I don't know how long it was but people were trying to pack in lots of stuff into that short space of time perhaps this is total this this could be total garbage now i'm spouting i have no idea whether it's fact or fiction but anyway it's my theory yeah but then you know so so people in ireland get those records and think oh right so that's how you do it you just played tune around twice and then you change and there's a key change and you know um and that becomes baked in and the same with kind of maybe perhaps accompaniment then that when you introduce chord changes because the tunes are so modal to get any excitement maybe you need a bit more change um whereas let's say with old time music they're quite happy to just you know play in one key for two hours and then think oh will we go to g okay major move everyone changes from d to g and like they live there for two hours and and uh so (laughs) i don't know i think there's just a lot of precedence of um of maybe also the music people grow up listening to in a way i I always think you are what you eat musically and if you've grown up listening to records where where uh you know a tune is played around two or three times and then there's a, a wonderful key change that's kind of like a you know a, a hit of sugar for a two-year-old yeah. <laughs> that um it that got that kind of excitement takes over from perhaps what we're talking about there where you play a tune over for you know 50 times and and reach somewhere more meditative but um i think for a lot of people the excitement takes precedence over the meditative perhaps it's interesting how you mention a lot of it might have to do with the influences and a lot of your pieces that you've done either with a solo or particularly then with your with your bands to sit on the longer side of things like from your canon of influences were you what, what was influencing you in that kind of longer style well yeah i think um i think it probably comes from it, exactly the thing we're talking about there initially you know that that discovery that playing the tune over and over and over leads to interesting things and that once you're there if you break out of it it takes you <laughs> you know if you're in the middle of a wonderful place and then you think oh i better stop now i've been going too long and you stop and uh you know there's a there's a pause then you have to work quite hard to get back to that place so if you've if you work so hard to get somewhere then i think it's worth staying there for a while and i think uh i i listened to your interview with uh, afric boylan and it was wonderful to be reminded of uh those times when we were teenagers just playing for hours and hours and hours and that would have been a feature of of it of our playing back then was like play tunes over and over and then you know really seeking to hold on to that place that we got to and not not give it up too easily the same i think later later in life as well than in terms of a performance situation that that if you do somehow get to the point where you're able to spin magic inside people's heads in a particular concert at a particular time that 
when you stop playing then and there's applause and somebody speaks into a microphone and you know addresses the audience that you've you're kind of breaking the spell and you have to work quite hard to get back in there so i just i think as a I guess for myself going to a concert and being on the other side of it and experiencing that I I really like the staying in the magic when somebody's kind of ha- has created that thing to to not be afraid of staying there so that's 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 part of it but I, I suppose I really like the short forms as well and and um you know I made a, a funny little album uh, I think in 2007 called Where the One-Eyed Man is King and there was a lot of very short tracks on that and that was that was inspired by uh, in a way an album called Miniatures uh, and Miniatures 2 where a load of different composers were asked to create one minute long pieces and uh, and I just really liked that idea of kind of trying to condense your I- idea into a, a very short space of time as well so you know I'm not I'm not wedded to the idea of only long form pieces i think you can achieve quite a lot in a in a short space and particularly with the recorded medium i think short can be interesting you can kind of curate your time your canvas of time there quite quite effectively but i think in a live music situation uh, i i would rather the longer how, do, how does it feel when you're on stage and the spell is broken for that moment before you get a chance to go back in. So you're sitting in between in that interstitial space between one set of tunes and the next. Um, well, it depends, really. It, <laughs> it depends. Did you did you manage to complete or kind of get to where you wanted in the in the first one? I suppose if it's ended prematurely, it can be a bit frustrating but if you've if you've managed to kind of complete your thought i think it's very satisfying and then you just move on and um and yeah continue <laughs> i mean what's the alternative i don't know <laughs> and, um so so then who were the early influences for you when you were a youngster i mean when you were starting to play who were the were you hearing music around a lot when you were a, a youngster yeah i was i suppose my parents uh were very interested and are very interested in traditional music and um the the interest would have very much come from would have come from them uh in terms of the record collection at home and having music on and uh you know when we go for long drives in the car there would have been a tape deck and we'd be they'd be playing uh tapes and just that music in the air so um I think the initial impulse for me demanding to get a fiddle as a six-year-old was uh, hearing uh, John Sheehan's Marino Waltz and and that really took hold of me and I wanted to get a fiddle and I wanted to play the fiddle on account of that. Um, And then uh, I guess it didn't work out too well at that point. We couldn't find a, a fiddle teacher so I ended up having to go to violin lessons and that was a total disaster but um you mean classical classical yeah yeah right. but the teacher was uh we didn't hit it off let's put it that way so but anyway then then when <laughs> why, I was, why not why not uh yeah oh I, it, um do you have a bleeper there <laughs> <laughs> no i think it's a podcast just, nobody cares yeah <laughs> no we 
she just uh i think she was maybe more concerned with with uh, what the wider world thought of her pupils rather than fostering any love of music in in the pupils so uh i don't know i don't really remember to be honest i've only right. uh, have a vague uh sour taste left in the mouth after all these years and kind of going on stories i've been told but uh but then when i was 10 my parents sent me back to lessons and at that point i was sent to the same teacher that afric uh, was taught actually mary grievy and uh i was learning a few other instruments as well the whistle and um subsequently flute and pipes and uh but i was on the point i didn't really take to the fiddle then i was on the point of giving it up when um another family the that afric mentioned the the O'Cahans from kilcock and kildare uh, said actually you should you should go to this fiddle teacher Phelan O'Reilly." and uh so so i did just before they said before you give it up give Phelan a chance and um and so <laughs> Phelan was brilliant he uh <laughs> he he was quite grumpy the the class was at 10 a.m on a saturday morning over in marino and um he might have been not in the he mightn't have been an early board let's say <laughs> put it like that but uh i don't know for whatever reason i i, I really took to to fail him now he's still going to to mary grievy and i think mary o'halloran as well so i had quite a lot of of uh you know tunes to learn and um and i was going to michael tuberty for flute and whistle and it's going to joe doyle for the pipes and there was a there's a load of of music going on and Jeez, that's of, a lot to juggle at young age. it was a lot to juggle yeah yeah um and i suppose so all of those teachers would have been influences but then um I remember at the Flas and Milltown Malbay and stuff like that, I was very taken with the man who had taught uh, Phelan and uh, Makhtar and the O'Reilly's in general, um, Anton McGowan. And I just loved the kind of the rhythm he had when he played. So as teenagers, we would have kind of crept up to the when he'd be he loved playing on the on the street kind of rather than pubs street sessions so they'd find a doorway uh, at, at these festivals and you know maybe six or seven musicians would take out their instruments and a crowd would form and huge crowd out into the street and block off the street but there was just something really wonderful about the the rhythm he had and he was very generous he'd see us uh standing there and he'd kind of motion to us to join in and and we join in and i remember trying to play along and not make a sound at all but just try and absorb like a, a sponge how the music felt and uh and you'd go away then and try and hold on to a tiny little molecule of that feeling and you might hold on to it for a day or two days but after a week it'd be gone and you'd look forward to the next uh time you'd get to play with them and uh and the same then for dermy diamond uh, i don't know if you know dermy's fiddle playing but he's a wonderful uh wonderful person and and fiddle player and uh, uh i think maybe at the willie clancy week there was one particular year where i think we played around 14 hours a day most days that week in queely's pub and uh just these epic uh sessions of music that uh again that kind of extremely infectious rhythm that you'd try and hold on to then over the space of the the rest of the summer and inevitably it'd kind of fade away but uh 
yeah really how how old were you when at this time when you're talking about this that's you know that's teenage years i guess uh, probably maybe 13 to maybe i don't know 17 for the kind of the anton mcgowan era and then mm-hmm. from there on for a few years uh kind of with Jeremy, um and then you know simultaneously like let's say with the likes of africa or michelle mulcahy or uh a good few other musicians like um mikey smith or wh- whoever else uh you'd be kind of uh kind of creating your own version of of what you felt these these sessions had at the core of them what made what made them so special like because of course throughout the rest of the year you're going to sessions you know uh in dublin or whatever and and they just don't have that magic thing so you're trying to figure out well, what what was it what is it and how does it come to be that like a session can take off and once it's taken off that no matter who you tag onto it it can expand and expanding expand but somehow at the core of it there's this uh irresistible engine driving it forward and um yeah i think for a few years that became a a kind of an interesting thing to try and figure out is how do you how do you create an irresistible core perhaps uh, at the heart of a session now am i right in thinking that, that you're also a theoretical physicist well i studied four years studied. Yeah, i did a degree in in, yeah. in theoretical physics yeah it's it there sounds like some kind of overlap there in the in the language that you're using to describe the session and um I don't know. There's the, um, <laughs> the image that came into my head was something to do with the nature of the universe. That's about as specific as I can be. But it sounds um, like you're on on the right track there. I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, it's something about energy and energy and entropy and momentum and expansion and contraction. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. In in prep for this, I was reading an an old interview you did with Quentin Toner, and I'm pretty sure it was with him. Maybe it was like 2003, 2007, and you you were likening music to um, the, um, Schrodinger's cat and quantum physics, and that that got me that got me in a tickle area. I love that idea of what is present and what's not present in the music, and, and the importance <laughs> of each one. You really, I don't know if it's worth explaining it again. But uh, yeah, you, you you landed the nail on the head with me, and anyway. I love that you had me grinning like an idiot. Uh, yeah, well, I suppose I was I was trying to figure out like what what is a tune? You take a tune, and and we all we all know, let's say you know Miss McLeod's reel or whatever. But but every single person plays it differently. So so what is it that is the tune? If if you have you know ten thousand musicians who all have their own version of it. <laughs> So can we kind of layer all those versions on top of each other, like abstractly in our in our minds? Imagine you've got this layer of 10,000 ways of playing the tune. But then each time each of those musicians plays the tune, it's slightly different. So you've got, you know, many more multiples of it. Then you've got like all the people who have ever played that tune in the past, uh, how they ever played it, but also how they ever could have played it. And all the people in the future <laughs> who will learn it in the future and all the ways they will play it throughout their lifetimes and then you know 
all all the ways it could be played uh, and so you've got this very interesting kind of stack of possibilities um, and that imagine if you were a, a computer navigating how do I play this tune and how do I make my decisions in the moment what note am I going to play next for how long at what volume at what precise pitch um, and all the other kind of choices that are open to us as musicians uh how do we how do we as musicians collapse those possibilities into the reality of the tune in that particular instance and it seemed to me that it was quite similar to the the idea of of the schrodinger's cat that like the tune is actually an underlying logic it's the superimposition of all those possible ways of playing it and yet somehow that they're they're all coherent um there's some kind of a logic running through the whole lot but uh, i think see this is the moment when i really miss being sitting in a, in the same room when we're doing these because i'm i'm grinning like an idiot i've got goosebumps it makes it makes such sense i love it it's such a great analogy yeah well i suppose then it's that's fine as a theory but how do you use it then as a practical kind of say okay i actually want to act on that realization so so you've learned a tune, a tune you know well, and you think, I know the notes of that tune. So, you know, <laughs> the A comes after the B and then there's the D. But actually, if you go off and you find all the recordings anyone has ever made of that tune and you try and internalize those in your bones, every single one. And um, and can you play all those versions? If you can hold in your head, let's say, five different versions of the tune simultaneously five options at every point of that tune can you roll a dice in your own mind i'm i'm on the fifth note of the tune i'm going to roll a dice and choose what happens next and and continue to do that and continue to feed in more richness into it you get to a point then where you've got you've got an embarrassment of riches in terms of your choice at every point of a tune and uh and I suppose that's kind of where it where it becomes interesting. I think it. I think you you reach a very similar place with what we were talking about earlier, playing a tune over and over and over until you've done all the clever things you can think of, and then your brain starts kind of exploring the the possibilities that you can't think of, which is kind of <laughs> the interesting point. Do you think we could have another tune? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Any. Any requests or ideas um i just I, I was wondering about the merino waltz actually that you i mentioned. don't Do actually you have know it i never i never okay. learned it i wanted mm -hmm. that violin teacher to to teach it to me but she didn't <laughs> <laughs> but i i never went back and learned it okay um yeah. uh <clears throat> well, well since I, we're go on no go, go ahead no no well, since we're we're in since we're in, in the esoteric space, I mean, um, is it would you would you play one of your pieces that goes towards that idea of um, um, where tunes begin to disintegrate and what is a tune, what isn't a tune? Well, I could um, I could try. I don't I don't know. Uh, I have. I don't know if you feel if you have off. to be in a particular mood. Yeah, kind of. yeah. I mean, I can, I can just start playing, and um, I, I don't know. I don't, not feeling a whole lot of music in the in the bones. But sure, I'll, I'll make some noise, and we'll see what happens. I suppose. Yeah, it, it just go as long as you go as long as you need to. Don't feel yeah. you have to stop. <laughs>
<laughs> I just need to rosin the bow here. It's uh, a bit greasy. Thank you. 
that was the the lonesome jig or or uh, an an echo of it anyway thank you so much for that that was so special thank you and i don't know there's a weird part of me that likes kind of very strange things because we're recording it down this zencaster line it kind of it's it was almost at times like hearing it from what's the name of the thing in stranger things like the upside down it was like being played and we were hearing it through there it was so great I, I, I get a kick out of stuff like that sometimes when it's so bad it becomes beautiful again brilliant um, so I wanted to ask you about just you know those early periods when you're going to the flas and and, and you're seeing the music is it, is it well how clear is it to you that you have a sensibility that might be distinct from the I just want to play in sessions kind of sensibility. I am. Um, yeah, I suppose that was pretty early on that I, I found. I think from, well, I, there were kind of parallel understandings. I think that the session thing was fabulous because that like what I talk about there, the sessions with, you know, Africa and with Jeremy Diamond and all of that, they were really magnificent experiences um but that's quite different to kind of the perhaps the the regular sessions um where i suppose the difference is there wasn't there's not always listening going on but so when when people are listening and when people are reacting and uh there's actual real communication i think that's where things become interesting in in terms of the session for me um but all along, I suppose, what I really felt was where, where <laughs> the real music in, in your whatever quotes you, you prefer uh, was the solo music, the, the solo artist. And when I say that, I think of, let's say, Tony McMahon uh, or Willie Clancy or, you know, a singer like Colm O'Quion or Patty Ike Fagg. Um, or any of these musicians that had an incredibly beautiful, unique, idiosyncratic voice with something to say, you know. And the same with Patrick O'Keefe, all these fiddle players that that uh, Afric talked about, like Junior Crehan and Joe Ryan and Bobby Casey and Paddy Canny. And I and I was always so much more interested in in them as. Uh, individual solo musicians than wanting to play with them you know that 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 just didn't interest me I wanted to hear what they had to to say and um, so that becomes my definition of of what traditional music is which is very different from somebody whose definition let's say is equally valid but let's say you know they've grown up listening to, to bands so bands are traditional music and uh yeah so i suppose all all my own kind of internal choices that you're t- asking about as a teenager kind of went to kind of discover why what is so different and special about these individual unique solo voices and can i find a way to to find that in myself i suppose and and was that process all happening through your music or were you writing about it as well or you know how were you 
asking those questions and articulating that process you know what i mean yeah very much just through the music really yeah um in in choosing what to listen to how to listen to it and how to react to what i learned there um so kind of let's say i i mentioned you know patrick o'keefe or patrick kelly and i would have listened to maybe taken one of those and listened to them exclusively for about a year and try and let the music seep into my bones and then allow it to re-emerge but not as something you learnt um i didn't sit down and you know pause play pause play get the next note and add it to it it was just can i soak in that music and then can i get it to the point where i i can you know i can embody it without even listening to it anymore is it inside me and then how do i find a way of letting it out i think i think they're the two challenges in a way as a as a musician learning one is to enrich the music that's inside you and the other challenge is to find a better way of letting that music out so it's not necessarily about the the technical side of the instrument or anything like that it's like can you feel more freedom to let what's inside you out or is what's inside you not rich enough (laughs) so then maybe you just need to enrich it but you do also need to have the vocabulary to but very little very very little and i think that's something i learned listening to a lot of old recordings that you know let's say i would have heard um the likes of Tony McMahon and I think old John Kelly revered Mrs. Galvin, Mrs. Ellen Galvin uh, from from County Clare and uh, who was this extraordinary fiddle player. But but you'd play her for somebody now and they they'd probably be very challenged to listen to it. But these musicians I admired hugely um, thought she was the greatest so so let's go and listen to her and find what they found there and try and understand it and try and learn from it and uh yeah so but when you listen to her you're 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 not in awe of technical ability and yet she's an incredibly strong voice and i think with with the same with many kind of very compelling musicians that I would have listened to recordings of, let's say in the traditional music archives and elsewhere, that that with very small uh, vocabulary in a way and a very small kind of conventional level of technical expertise that they could make music that makes the hair stand your neck or makes you want to get up and dance you know you think the macdudden is a balnafad playing together brother two brothers uh, flute and fiddle and that music is just it's it's rocket fuel in terms of <laughs> what it does for your body but it's you wouldn't you wouldn't be uh, engrossed in the technical side of it uh that's not the point and and i think i think we lose sight of that <laughs> that uh that you really you already probably know everything you need to know but but you just probably need to either enrich the music that's inside you or find a find a better way of letting it out and i think one of the best ways of letting it out is kind of lilting as you're going around you know walking down the street or cycling your bike or whatever i've i found that very liberating because with the instrument you're you've got a you're bringing so much baggage every time i take up the fiddle or tin whistle that you're 
bring in all this baggage of oh this is the way it's meant to be oh that's where your finger is meant to go oh this is how the bow is meant to go um and that all gets in the way of letting the music out so i think a, a much freer way of letting the music out is just through lilton you don't have to be a good lilter it's just for yourself to find more freedom and if you can find the freedom to do kind of wonderful liberating outrageous things by singing the tune can you find kind of a joyous freedom through that then the challenge becomes can i get the things out of my way on my instrument can i get them out of the way of letting that joy through a bit and and that was kind of my <laughs> journey for a few years as a as finding a more effective way of letting that kind of freedom through mm-hmm. but finding the freedom too in the first place that's a that goes back to our Schrodinger's cat. <laughs> yeah. When when you then start start going to university, um, you're stu- you go to study theoretical physics. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Right. So, um, presumably, that's a. I always thought of that as a very intense discipline. And the people I knew at school who were good at that stuff were super smart but also super hard workers how did you manage to kind of get through your teenage years with music and then with like this very intensive academic pursuit or well yeah i suppose i i i I probably was smart but i wasn't disciplined and I, i didn't really i didn't work that hard and got away with it i suppose uh but i didn't have a love of it perhaps um uh, I guess and music was a parallel kind of a release it was the the place I went to escape from from that and um, so yeah I suppose yeah didn't definitely didn't get in the way I mean <laughs> mm. I, I didn't work as, as hard of I, as I could have or should have probably but uh, at the same time music kind of flourished in those years too mm-hmm. where did you grow up? In Dublin, yeah. In um, Dublin, in, in um, Knockline and Rathfarnham in in Dublin. And did your mother and father play? Well, they didn't initially, but they took it up later in life. Um, I think Mam took up the concertina maybe, oh, probably in in her fifties, perhaps. And uh, and Dad has taken up the kind of accordion concertina maybe over the last ten fifteen years. So, um, but they said they certainly had a big interest in music. I think they would have loved to play earlier than that, but for whatever reason, didn't have the opportunity, you know. Were, were they supportive of you musically? Oh, hugely. Like, I mean, obviously, hugely they were driving you around to flas. Yeah, yeah. No, they they continue to be hugely supportive. They're amazing. Um, yeah, and 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 not just supportive but they really connect with the music and and love it and uh so i'm very lucky yeah when when they turned around and and started to learn in later life was what kind of what, what was that like obviously you being so far advanced and your parents haven't supported you it, 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 is do you find yourself in a bit of a, a weird dynamic then with them kind of no no not at all i mean teaching them through no i mean they 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 find their own ways to learn and um 
uh, yeah, I think I think um, I you know might now and again offer the odd bit of advice, but I I'm not a teacher really, you know, and I don't I don't know, um, but they get a huge amount of satisfaction from it, and I think that's that's what you want, isn't it? Like, yeah, they they just really love love playing and love learning and um and you know they're mom's been playing for what 20 years now so she's she's flying and dad gets a great kick out of you know getting a new tune on the the accordion so but no there's there's no there's no weirdness there at all i don't think yeah and then you've probably been asked this a million times but i i, I don't do want to ask it how did the hardinger come in onto 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 the scene for you so what was what was the the moment when you've you found it and went no, actually this is the instrument i'm going to go towards well actually after i'd finished third year of my degree um a professor kind of insisted that i go to the states to this uh particle accelerator in on long island and i really <laughs> didn't want to go because cause the summers for me were music and i look yeah. forward to them and and to be honest, the, the the physics was in the way of that <laughs> more than anything. I'd, I really wasn't that interested uh, in the physics at that point. And um, so I, I, you know, refused and I said, look, there's loads of other lads in the class. They'd love to go. They'd give their left arm to, to get this opportunity. And I, I don't I don't want it. And he said, no, no, you we have to send you. <laughs> he really shouldn't have but he insisted so I ended up bargaining down from I think three months to one month and I went for the month of September and yeah I I felt it was a total waste of time both for them and for me Um, but the thing that came out of it was they they found out that I played the fiddle and they asked me to do a lunchtime concert and so I did that and two separate scientists came up to me afterwards one was a chemist uh Jeffrey I forget his surname and he said you have to come to my house I have a, a tape I need to play for you and so I, and and then another guy guy came up to me and said ah I, I've got a son who plays this strange fiddle and, and you need to meet him come over for dinner later in the week so I went to the first guy's house I think on the Wednesday and uh, the tape he put it in and pressed play and I was blown away by the sound it was the first time I'd ever heard the Hardanger fiddle and um what was it oh, did, do you remember what the piece yeah, of music was it was uh Lon- one of the londal brothers uh Kettle londal and it was this tape cassette of of him playing solo hardanger fiddle and uh yeah i was i was kind of paralyzed with the just the sound of it and the beauty of it and um and then as i was going he, he insisted i take the tape and i was all you know oh no i couldn't possibly take it and he said well please take it you know i i actually really despise this music but i thought you might like it (laughs) (laughs) but uh and he was right how could you despise that how could you despise that music it's incredible i know i know Uh, Uh, i don't know if he would despise was the word but uh he, he wasn't that into it yeah um but then and then later the same week i went to the other man's house and his son turned out to play the hardanger fiddle so it was two introductions in the same week and so his son and his wife uh played the guitar and they played some music for me and uh 
we kept in touch and and that's that son's name was dan truman <laughs> who we talked ah, about at the beginning of yeah, the program yeah, okay. so so while the the physics side of it was a complete waste of time the that unexpected chance turned out to be pretty life-changing for yeah change for me you know yeah. <laughs> so that's um, how we came to to come across the hard anger anyway Doing, again, a bit of a deep dive on you in prep for this uh, was an article I read and you'd mentioned uh, an album, The Star Above the Gatter. Yes. And yeah, I, I don't know if you've ever listened to any of these episodes before, but I've, I've a bit of a, an obsession with the pipes and I've only come to traditional music in the in the last number of years and the pipes really grabbed me. And in the article, you, you, you drew the comparison between the kind of the double stopping and the kind of the... Um, the bowing that had a kind of sympathetic strings also um, sounding and the pipes having having the drone and I, I'd never put two and two together and obviously me being a, an all-time um, American fan Hardinger appears in in all-time a lot and I've always loved that sound it was a complete penny drop when I read that article that you said well there's there, there are many similarities there who, who, yeah, do, yeah. Who, the the star above the garter. The only thing I found, and I've, I was only looking really for it this week. Who, who made that album? It's Cladder Records. Uh, Would have made it. Yeah. Okay. It's oh, it's got uh, one of the greatest the covers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like always oh, that's like a paint, like a it reminds me of one of my old school books, like almost like an Anne and Barry school book. Yeah, yeah. It's like I don't know the colors in it shout Mexico to me for some reason. It's got oh, these yeah, incredibly yeah. vibrant. It's a bar scene with the uh, with the musicians and the music going on. But yeah, it's Dennis Murphy and Julie Clifford who I mentioned Podrick O'Keefe earlier on. I think uh, Podrick would have taught both of them but they're brother and sister from the Schlievlucre area of uh, the fabled kind of mythical area of Schlievlucre of musical renown <laughs> and w- that analogy was that something that was that came to you fairly early on like once you'd heard the, the Hardinger and then because you, you were playing pipes at this stage was that was it kind of obvious to to you at that stage that it was the drone that was drawing you in, or if, if it was it the drone that was drawing you in? Mm, I don't I don't know I don't I honestly can't remember when when I put the the two and two together. Um, but certainly the that that sound of the drone. I mean, and and I in your uh, your chat with Afric, she was kind of talking about that tuning the fiddle down, which I. I've always mm-hmm. done uh, to try and get that more buzzy sound as well and um, then let's say you know cross tuning the fiddle tuning it in in a tuning other than f- fifths uh, would have been something that I came across as many people did through the playing of Patrick Kelly uh, for the Fox Hunters reel where he tunes it I guess uh, DGDG or EAEA or whatever you want Um but I once cross-tuned I tuned mine the other day for the first time, and I've no business dabbling in in that kind of stuff with the how far but, I am and my journey. But, but you know, had, like, from the banjo, DD. like you'd probably do it with the old timey, no? Yeah, but the I don't know, maybe because the the fiddle is, is so new, it's yeah. I thought it was a bit early gates for messing around. Anyway, the 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 cross tuning was to learn a, a a tune called Midnight on the Water, and it's um so it's DD. A E that would be right, yeah. And okay. I, I can't bring myself to go 
get come out of it and it's making me think you know what maybe i've got the wrong instrument maybe i should have got a hiding it because i just the the droning and double stops it within within old time and then when it comes up like Afric's playing i just adored for that reason and you're playing for that reason that is i think for me what resonates i love everything else that's happening within within the instrument all those overtones just and i think that's why i like the pipes so much do, do you right, still so play the pipes no i don't i don't have a set anymore um but yeah going back to the the kind of the different tunings i mean you you do find uh uh older recordings of fiddlers using these alternative tunings so uh Patrick o'keefe for uh the old man rocking the cradle there's one of those i think where he has the g string tuned down to a d and certainly in donegal there's instances of that kind of um uh, as well and various different tunings so so the idea it's so funny that it's so, something that kind of goes unquestioned that fiddle must be tuned in fifths but that's that's a that's certainly not the case and it's a can be a really interesting area of exploration of finding these different c- characters i think within the instrument so what did you do when you got back to ireland and you kind of you you, you knew of this new instrument right what was yeah. the next what was next i kind of went online at the time which was not, i think the year 2000 so it wasn't like now where you can find everything easily i you know you had to you had to still had to kind of work a bit hard but uh, i found the the other two tapes from that guy's brothers uh and ordered them these kind of beautiful old cassette tapes of of solo hardanger fiddling and then just kind of slowly started amassing uh, more recordings and listened to them for probably maybe four or five years before i thought uh and just kind of trying to soak in that music without i didn't really have any intention of ever trying to learn it or or the like um but what were your mates thinking were they were they all on board or were you kind of out on your own with the the love for the hiding or that stage? I, th- definitely some people were fascinated by it um for sure some like it it sounded so when when all we had listened to before was traditional irish music it just sounded really wild and uh unexpected like shocking uh the the combination of of notes and and some of the <laughs> extremely specific uh, notes that you know you can't find on a on a piano or or the like but they're so specific um that that was and and kind of elicited a very strong reaction and yeah like like an having an ice bucket thrown over you like that level of shocking uh and thrill you know very thrilling um so yeah i think some some of us were fascinated by that so where did where where did you manage to find one then to when like when you decided you were going to make the move well so mick o'brien actually had been playing with some norwegian musicians and um he knew he he said if you ever want one let me know and i i can get in touch with neil so uh i think yeah after four or five years i thought actually i need i need to get one of these and i kind of thought you know i could i in my head, the likes of Julia Clifford or Patrick O'Keefe would have loved to get their hands on one of these things. <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> to me, it felt very married to that world of sound that they were creating. So um, I kind of, yeah, I thought 
yeah I need I need to get my hands on one of these instruments and um, so I got asked Mick actually would you put me in touch with Niels and Niels said sure I'll, I'll find you one of these things give me a while so he got back and said I have one for you meet me in London I'm doing a concert there so I flew over handed him the cash to give to the man who was selling the fiddle and got the Harlanger and um, and came back and started noodling around on it and um and having the crack um and that that Niels turned out to be Niels Auckland who since became one of my absolute favorite musicians uh extraordinary um kind of inventive uh Scandinavian musician I don't know if you oh. if you're familiar with his work but it's really a huge inspiration to me I'm not, but I'll check it out. Yeah. So, so were you working as a musician then at this point? Um, no, uh, I would have. I let's say 2001. I had finished the degree and I went m- making pipes then for three years, kind of learning the craft. And then oh, wow. I had a few years of just uh, chancing my arm and. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> how were you I'd keeping had, life and soul together well i you see i'd got a scholarship from trinity that entitled me to a few years of accommodation and food and the like for doing you know a master's or whatever so i kind of uh used that without doing any work <laughs> and uh lived the life and they they didn't throw me out so I was did you do the masters not at all <laughs> <laughs> I think I did about two weeks of thinking about it and then that was that and uh, so it's <laughs> a pretty that sounds like a pretty sweet deal though I know so. I know it's wrong and it's it's anyway I got away with it and um, <clears throat> so but then I suppose I had been working part-time in the traditional music archives and I'd put out the album with Mick O'Brien, the Kitty Lie Over album. And then gigs had kind of started to come in on the back of all of that. And before too long, kind of over the next years, I just kind of tipped along as uh, in whatever way I could. And then the music just started picking up to the point where I realised I don't really need to do anything else so it, it wasn't really a, a conscious decision I'm going to make my life as a as a musician it was just uh, it just kind of crept up on me did it did it seem like um, was it an easy transition to make when you have to start thinking about the music less in the conceptual sense and more in the pounds shillings and pence kind of sense I don't think I ever really changed to thinking it in the, the pound, shilling and pence way. Um, to be honest, um, I just, uh, I, I'm kind of still amazed when anyone <laughs> likes the noise I make, you know, it's a, I accept it and I'm grateful for it, but it's, it's a kind of a nice um, a side benefit to, to make a noise I want to make I suppose mm-hmm. how are you doing for time are you okay yeah could we ask you for another tune I suppose I could yeah is there any I I, 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 I go well, on I was gonna I really like your version of um, 
Easter Snow. Oh yeah. If that's yeah. Anyway, that could be nice. Yeah. Near the fingertips. Yeah.
Easter snow. That's a that's another Seamus Ennis tune. Yeah. Oh, Craving, thank you so much for that. That was yeah. again amazing. Just thank you. Um, when, when, sorry, Tom. When when you um listen to Seamus Ennis, what do you what do you hear? Well, I suppose the classic era of Ennis, you hear the sound of the pipes. I, I, I think many pipers would consider that set with those reeds at that time as the finest sound <laughs> of of pipes. It's really special, um, and and there's just just kind of a few years. I think you know the maybe. Is it the late forties, early fifties, where they're just at absolute peak of 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 sound, but also his playing, and I I think of his playing kind of in the same vein as let's say Paddy Cronin or, um, or, yeah, many many other musicians where there's, it's nearly like um, uh, they can see the sculpture in the block of marble before they start, and they're aiming for this beautiful perfect finished form that they know what it is and and there's kind of a classical austerity nobility to to the music that comes from that i think um and yeah to me ennis that's that's what i hear this this kind of nobility and an aim for for perfect form perhaps or something something along those lines you spent a long time in the Irish Traditional Music Archive when you were a student, right? Correct, yeah. 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 I'm, I'm wondering about, uh, in part, Afric Boylan mentions this, that uh, you were a well man for digging out the obscure tunes <laughs> yeah. and, and bringing them to parties. But, like, are there a couple of things that really stood out for you there when you were in the archive listening to things that, that just were like, I haven't heard this before? Or I haven't heard this voicing before. I haven't heard this. Yeah, loads, loads, and loads of stuff. Endless amounts of it. And uh, I suppose my my job there was to listen through uh, all the recorded music that you know the Kjol Rink and Heron books uh, that Brandon Brannock edited. I think there's four of them. Uh, yeah, he would have got he would have gone around the country and also got other musicians to go around the country and record the the musicians of those times whenever it was maybe early 60s or something like that or 70s i don't know exactly when uh but to record these musicians and uh, not for not for the recording but to tra- transcribe the tunes so for instance when i was being taught the the flute and whistle by michael tupperty he would have brought in recordings of Josie McDermott and I think that that he made you know but they mm-hmm. I think they were for for that project um Michael Tupperty would have been one of the the people that Brandon Brannock would have asked to go and collect this music and transcribe it and contribute it to these books so the the focus there was very much the books and and then many decades later you fast forward to me and my kind of summer job or my work experience in the archives and those tapes are still there and they've been transferred onto that but you've just got a a label you know tape 177 and it might tell you the musician is michael russell or it might not it might just say county clare or something so i had to go listen through the entire collection and write down 
uh, my best guess of who was playing what and um and then <laughs> you know pass them up the the food chain to the, the next process that came after me which was i think to double check all that information and then put them onto cd and catalog them so that if you walk into the archives you can you can see oh you know Seamus Ennis Easter Snow there's a recording <laughs> from you know 1963 and I want to listen to it so that so you can imagine like some of the music that was in there hadn't been heard and some of the musicians probably hadn't been heard and uh, I had access to this uh, these really extraordinary kind of little windows into the past and tunes and versions of tunes that um that you know i i certainly hadn't been familiar with and uh and i think yeah when when you transcribe something when you just put the dots on the page you lose out so much information that can be contained in a recording all the the interest the intricacies of of uh volume and envelope and precise variations in the you know the the tuning of of notes but also within the instance of a note and uh there's just so much information there that you can you learn from and uh and you know try and embody you know that 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 makes me think of a a nicholson baker essay i don't know if you're familiar with his i'm not his essays but he has a he's a great essay about what was lost when um, American libraries moved from using index cards to to digital media, and the um, I can't even begin to. I mean, he's such a sort of labyrinthine sort of writer, but one thing leads on to another, leads on to another, leads on to another. But the 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 um, almost intangible things that exist in an analog medium that are that are somehow lost in the digital. Um, it just makes me think about that, what you're talking about there, that the, the, the gap between the transcribed version and the, the lived version of a, of a tune, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, well, I think, yeah, the, the staff notation as a method of transcription, uh, it, that's, you know, it's useful to a point, but you need to know what you're not getting you need to know what's lost and there's vast amounts of information that can't be put on a page like that so it's, uh, yeah it's going back to that Schrodinger's cat again it's a, a very definite what's not on the page yeah that's all other other dimensions I suppose other dimensions yeah. that you know uh, the vast world contained within a single note that um, yeah you just you just can't notate that stuff it, I mean, like you can't. <laughs> that let's say you you think of a contour of texture and tone over the space of a note that lasts point five a second, but it might start uh, gentle and might get quite harsh towards the end of the note, and it might start like you know seventeen point four cents flat of equal temper might finish at fifteen point four cents flat, and it's like the shape of that contour that the scoop of the note like whoop right at the end there's a little sharpening <laughs> of the note um and so many other variables that you know you could you could maybe make a some weird 3d model of it <laughs> i don't know um so how did that um I, I mean i don't know if you're able to to say this but how did that change you that experience of being like just submerged in this world of old recordings because when i put headphones on and i and i listen to an archive recording i'm 
it's like I'm underwater, you know, and just gone. I am. Um, well, I suppose there's kind of some fundamental things I feel different about them to, let's say, commercial recording, because in a lot of cases, the they're not they're not performances. They're not they're, the psychology isn't a performance psychology. It's a sharing. It's very much a community uh, music. So you're not you know, when you put music on a stage and uh, I think our entire last few decades of music have been very much influenced by this idea of of uh, what people think. But I think that those those recordings that I would have been listening to in the archives, there's they're free of that in a way. I'm sure they're not totally free of it, of course, <laughs> but there wasn't the, the same level of uh, self I'm not, not saying self-awareness, but that, you know, Instagram <laughs> idea of what what I look like to the rest of the world. That was not a concern for these musicians in the 1960s or whenever. Yeah, so I think there's a fundamental, very different different thing about the quality of, of uh, the idea, actually. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Cool. Well, a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, and it's great, great series you've got going on and uh, long may it continue. Thank you. Um, now, customarily, we, we always um, are greedy and ask for one last tune. Um, is that remotely possible? Sure, I can play away around? here. You don't you don't mind okay. some extra uh, no. uh, kitchen percussion as well? No. Cool. Great. No. <laughs> Kevin, thank you so much, mate. Okay, nice one.
thank you. What were those? I've no idea. I just I don't <laughs> don't even know if they were. Well, that last one was a uh, was a uh, uh, load of notes in search of what the June was. I think, but um, Fair the enough. first one was called Paddy Sean Nancy's. I think, and it comes from the playing of Johnny Henry. Um, who would be a Mayo fiddler and I think I only know one track recorded of him uh, that tune I just really like it and the second tune I forget I just went into it uh, I can't remember um, yeah <laughs> you know I think Quivian has such a, a depth of hand and a way of playing it. And I said at the start, I know to say something is accessible sometimes can have a negative connotation to it, but I find it it's so beautiful. When when I'm when I'm trying to give some Irish music to someone, like one of my mates that's in, let's say a friend that I know through hip hop or or through techno or something, I give them the gloaming. For for that for that reason, it just it's. I think the beauty transcends its traditional um, roots. If that makes sense. Oh, do you know it does make sense? And for me, it makes sense in the context of something that I read an interview with Martin Hayes in the Irish Music Review or something last year that just a penny dropped for me, which I may have mentioned it before, where he, he talks about. The world where this music was created, these tunes came from, doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't exist anymore. And thinking about the music in those terms is pointless and it's ridiculous. The, the, the world of the Irish kitchens, and th- it, doesn't, it doesn't exist. It, it's like, it's a different thing now. It's, um, listening to the gloaming is like listening to any other incredibly finely wrought piece of musical art or you know what I mean that's that's like so it, it's 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 beyond the tradition I mean it has yeah. obviously it has kind of lines that go back into the tradition but it's way beyond that yeah. now, you know and I think it, it, it's it's one of those moments too listening to Queen while he's playing and and then knowing about him as a character and then listening to some of the things he was actually saying producing art in the moment because that's such a thing he holds close to him it's a very much kind of almost a zen it's about the now it's about what's happening right in this moment there's a um there's a beautiful it's just an, an artistic expression like you you're it, instead you're not i think it kind of because it's an artistic expression first it almost separates it from some of the baggage that it may come with if you label it under traditional artist music right yeah i hope hopefully that makes a bit of sense i know pretty incredible experience to be sitting here tonight tune in the middle that longer tune right in the middle i forget the name i don't think we have an name for it holy moly that was a moment and hopefully we'll get to to cherish it forever yeah just craving your class (laughs) so thank you so much for taking the time for doing this thank you Uh, and the usual call out we're coming to the end of the show will be like subscribe um hit the the five star review that really helps but most importantly the thing that will help us the most is for you to become one of our patron saints and help us keep this uh podcast going out every week it takes a lot of work to to make it happen and if you here's your reward right so you you give your 
three bucks an episode or five bucks an episode, whatever you choose. And you get to know that you have made what's just happened in the last couple of hours possible. That chat with Queeving and that music and those insights. And if that means something to you, then please. And I think Queeving, just at the very end there, mentioned about the the channel that we're carving out for ourselves. Dom and I started this in a shed in in Australia and we are now getting to speak with people like Quivine. The the wheels are in motion and for us to continue to, to keep those wheels in motion and to really make an imprint and talk to as many people as possible in as many countries as possible, we need support. And the patrons that have gone over there so far, thank you for allowing us to, to start carving that channel. And for anyone that thinks we're doing something worthwhile, well, patreon.com forward slash pilgrims is there waiting for you, a halo with your name on it to to hang on your imaginary wall in the imaginary place that all these halos exist. Someday, someday we'll have actual uh, premium gifts to give to you like they do in public radio in the States. Yeah. Send you a, like a reusable shopping bag or You're something. You're talking merch. The, I'm talking merch, man. <laughs> right. But... That's for the post-pandemic days. While we remain in mid-pandemic days, uh, virtual merch is all you're getting. So thank you as ever to all of you for listening. Thanks to your patrons and thanks to Queen O'Reilly. See you next week. See ya. Hi, my name is Jack. So please become a good subscriber to the podcast. Thank you.